the fight for the bites. Uh, you could say the campaign in Europe kind of officially had its last um, action for now in the canals of Amsterdam yesterday with Heath Josky and a number of really cool Dutchies hitting the canals and uh, making a fair bit of noise down in the Netherlands about the plans that Equinor has to drill in the bite. So one last paddle out to really let them know what's happening. This interview that's being shared now, I got to say, was a really, really amazing one that I got to have uh, with a young guy called Andreas Randoy from Natura Ungdom um, in Norway. This is like a membership organization for young people and uh, nature. They've been doing so many good things about oil drilling. They've been working against Ecuador, not specifically on the fight for the bite, but against them more generally in different areas. This is just the introduction to it all. It's certainly a part of what we're trying to communicate on this campaign. And I'm sure if you're Norwegian and you're under the age of, I think, 24 or 26, you are going to want to join this organization and you want to get get your hands dirty cleaning up this mess. Enjoy. The fight for the bite in Oslo continues. And today we're into the day. This is the eve of the Equinor AGM in Stavanger. And I rushed across Oslo to go and meet with another group that isn't specifically tied to the fight to the bike campaign, but is certainly working on some of the broader questions about oil exploration in Norway and in, uh, I guess you could say, the Arctic region. Um, I'll let this special guest answer a few of those questions and tell you all about it. But the guest I have sitting in front of me today in a really cool office, i got to say. I'm, it's one of the coolest office spaces I've come to in a while. But it's Andreas Randoy, and he is a board member and project leader at uh, Natur og Ungdomme. Uh, probably just butchered that as well. But that's Nature and Youth in Norway. And um, I really thank him for letting me drop by this pretty cool office. So thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So um, one of the, I guess let's just dive straight into the the really big question because as we discussed before recording this, your your work isn't hasn't really focused at all on the Equinor campaign in Australia, but it is certainly focused on Equinor in other ways and, and oil drilling and exploration in general. But um, what's the big problem with oil? Well, I think right now the biggest issue with oil is uh, tied to climate change. Uh, in order to meet the climate goals set out by the, uh, the, the UN, uh, we have to reduce oil consumption by 87% within 2050. So that's a radical shift we have to do in the energy sector. And uh, in Norway, we have planned uh, new oil fields that will start producing oil in 2040 and uh, keep on going way beyond we should be in a net zero carbon emissions. So uh, I think that's the, the biggest issue right now. But then also there are, there's always the risk of a, of a major uh, incident, of a major accident um, that could destroy all of the life in the area. And uh, then there's also uh, pollution coming from oil that's just producing all the time. The, the Norwegian uh, companies are uh, applying for new licenses to, to uh, dump waste uh, in the ocean and, and the government allows that almost every time. That's crazy. Mm. That whole 2040 number is really interesting. So you're saying that there's actually proposals already or fields that are already earmarked for drilling um, that, are, that will only start to be extracted in 2040? 
Yes. Approvals today. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, so we, we've been starting to ask uh, if this may even become a financial problem for Norway mm. in the future. Mm. Because if, if the EU meets its uh, climate targets, mm. then they're not supposed to use oil and gas in the future. Mm. And we've invested a lot of money and are going to invest a lot more money mm. in producing oil at least 20 years after the EU is supposed to stop using it. Yeah. So who's going to buy that oil? Mm. Probably Aussies. No. <laughs> but it's interesting. So this, and, and is this one of the interesting parts of Norwegian maybe uh, regional politics is that it isn't a part of the EU. So it's, prob- it's not bound by any kind of direction of the EU. Is there any influence of the EU on any policies up here or is it kind of sitting outside of all that? Well, we are, we are pretty tied to the EU still. Yeah. And, and uh, we are, in terms of the climate... Uh, goals of the EU, we are tied to those as well. Okay, so you have signed up to those. Yes, okay. we, we um, need to buy quotas in the EU quota system, for example. Okay. Yes. Was the emissions trading scheme or? Yeah. 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 Um, so we are quite tied in the energy sector to okay. the EU and, and our gas, all of our gas is sold to the EU, I think. Yeah. And most of the, the oil as well. Okay. So then how, like what's going on here then? If, if, if on the one hand Norway is tied on energy policy essentially to the EU, and then on the other there's this environmental goal of the EU, which they have signed up to, right? They have a clear goal to get there. How can uh, Norway continue to have this drilling proposed into the future if they're meant to be hitting this goal mm. environmentally with the with the Paris Agreement? Well, it, I don't think it makes sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> um... But uh, it's, it's, uh, the oil has been a, an extremely important industry for Norway, obviously. Mm. And I don't think the way Norwegian politics is right now, mm. um, Norway would never agree to sort of lose sovereignty mm-hmm. over, over its oil resources to the EU. Yeah. And I think that's um, uh, one of the reasons Norway didn't want to go into the EU yeah. was because we didn't want to lose control over our fish resources. Yeah. And um, I think, uh, yeah, that's important for the government. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, that's the big picture stuff. Like in terms of some of your campaigning, though, specifically when it's around this question of oil, like what are some of the the more specific campaigns that you're doing right Mm. now about this issue? Right now, we're focusing on oil in the Barents Sea. Yeah. So in 2014, the government opened uh, brand new areas Mm. for oil drilling. And that Mm. was the... The first time in 20 years that a brand new area was uh, opened mm. and it was because we we finally agreed uh, with russia on where the border went uh-huh. so now we could uh, start exploring that area and um, i think that i mean this is an area the the government calls it the barren sea we like to call it the arctic mm. because it is within the arctic yeah right and it immediately sounds a lot more crazy to do oil drilling in the arctic yeah where the climate is more unstable, where it's more dangerous, mm. and, and where the environment is more fragile and important. Mm. Okay, okay. And what are some of the clear actions that you take then as an organization about this specific, um, this specific area, the Barents Sea or the Arctic, I should mm. say? Well, uh, across the whole uh, country, our local chapters have made, uh, have had uh, demonstrations. Yeah. And we've... Uh, Tried to tell the government uh, not to do it in, um, oh, what is it called? 
Hearings? Hearings, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but uh, I think our, um, uh, our, the biggest thing we've done is mm. that we've uh, gone to court. Yeah. We've actually sued the government for opening up the Arctic for oil drilling. Okay. So we've done that together with Greenpeace. Yeah. Um, because Norway has, uh, in our constitution, we have uh, an environmental... Uh, paragraph, yeah, uh, which states that uh, every person has a right to a healthy environment. Oh, really? Yeah. So, That's nice. uh, yeah, and uh, and they even updated the law uh, a few years ago. They added a sentence saying uh -huh. that the government has to to take measures to make sure that this right is uh, fulfilled. Aha. Uh -huh. So we think that uh, producing oil uh, in 2070 in one of our most fragile areas mm. is a breach of that law. Mm. So, um, yeah, so we've been one round in court already. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, we won on some of our points, yeah. but uh, we lost overall. And that was because uh, the oil Norway produces is uh, mostly sold to other countries. Uh -huh. So the, the court argued that uh, the emissions start to exist in another country. So therefore, they're not Norway's responsibility. So, okay, that's interesting. I've been talking a bit about this with people because I think Australia historically has used the same mm. rationale uh, when it comes to mm. measuring emissions from our country. We're already a per capita emitter of CO2. Uh, I think we're number one in the world. Um, and I only recently found out that one of the most recent reports had included the emissions from our exported uh, carbon intensive resources like uh, gas and, and coal particularly. Um, so that's an interesting part of this then. So, I mean, how, how long ago was this clause? Do you know anything about the history of the constitution in Norway? Like wh when, mm. how long has this environmental consideration been in the, in the constitution of Norway? It seems like it might be quite recent to me, but I have no idea. Yeah, it, uh, the law, it first got in in 1990. Yeah, right. Uh, so it's quite old. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the first. And, and um, the background was the uh, Our Common Future yeah. report. Yeah. Um, that was so, the Brundtland report. Yes. Yeah? Mm. yeah, in Norway we call it the Brundtland yeah, report. Yeah, oh, I do too, actually. <laughs> That's how I remember it, yeah. Was that your Prime Minister? Yes. Um, I, I wanted, what was the first name of uh, um, Oh, what is her name? Yeah. Uh, it's a female, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it was yeah. Anna Brundtland, uh, maybe. Sounds right. Yeah. Ah! That's embarrassing. We'll, go we'll Google that. We'll yeah. Google that later. Sorry, Miss <laughs> Mrs. Brundtland. Yeah. Um, okay, well, she was so uh, Ministry of uh, Environment back yeah. then, I think. Okay. Yeah. What an exceptional thing to do. Yeah. That must have been a really big deal in Norway at the time. Well, it. That's maybe. I. I don't think it actually was. Really. And that's. Part of the problem that yeah. it, it's never been used yeah, at all. Okay. No one's ever uh, not done anything because of that law. Okay. So, but then in in 2014 they updated it. Mm. Um, and the <laughs> actually a funny story. The mm. the whole constitution got uh, changed because it was originally in Danish. Okay. And <laughs> they that found be a out, problem in Norway. Yeah, yeah, because it was written when. <laughs> the official language in Norway was Danish. Okay. But then in 2014, they decided now we're going to translate it to Norwegian uh -huh. so that Norwegians can understand it better. That makes sense. And uh, they also updated 
some of the right. laws while doing that, and cool. then they they strengthened that part that part of the law in 2014. Yes. Wow. So that's very recent. Then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was sort of when they did that. The environmental organization said, you know, they, we can use this. Okay. Yeah. And so this court case that you're now engaged with uh, in with uh, Greenpeace. Is this one of the first times this has been truly tested in the Norwegian courts? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, that's that's a pretty big deal to be going to court with the with the state to yeah. kind of get them to stop drilling. Is the actions that you're taking in the court is the kind of idea that um, you're you're essentially trying to stop them from drilling in the Barents Sea or allowing drilling up there, right? Is that the is that the kind of court case? Is that the question? Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing that if you can win that, that'll have a trickle down effect to other environmental areas. Would you say, or is that or is that not really the assumption from there? That's. Uh, I don't think that uh, we're quite sure. Mm. I mean, we're we're suing the government for the uh, specific licenses okay. given out. Okay. And it's a part of the. Um, a part of the argument is on climate, yeah. so that you know that that appeals to anywhere, to, to anywhere. Yeah, yeah. But the part of it is also the fragile natural environment. Okay. So we've said that the court can sort of decide which of the arguments they want to use. Yeah. Um, and of course, in in some areas, in some of the licenses, mm -hmm. the the environment is more fragile than in others. Sure. But. Uh, I at least think that if we win, um, oil drilling in the Barents Sea is going to become very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Great. What's the next steps on this? Like, where where is the court case? You said you lost the first round, mm. but you're obviously appealing that. Mm. Yeah. What, what are the next kind of? What's the timeline look like for people to stay involved? Yeah, we uh, so we were in the first round in November of 2016, yeah. and then we're going to the Court of Appeals in November this year. Okay. So it's quite a long wait yeah, sure. <laughs> for the next round. Sure. Um, but then after that, we we assume that either one who loses is going to appeal to the yeah. high court. Okay. And then we're we're going to high court in maybe half a year okay. after after the court. Appeals. So middle of twenty twenty is kind of the high court moment you imagine. Yeah. And um and is drilling is there like a moratorium on drilling or exploring up there and, until this court case? Is finished? Like, how does that kind of work? Unfortunately, not. Okay. Uh, we've asked for that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. So right now, there's uh, on the northernest most uh, platform. Yeah. Uh, there is um, like test drilling. Like uh -huh. they're looking for oil okay. right now. All right. So it's happening. Yeah. They're going ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. The clock's ticking. The clock is ticking. Mm. Well, wow, that was uh, such a big overview of everything that's happening here. <laughs> but I feel like the listener who may not be familiar with um, your organisation, let's like, I'd like to try and give them a bit of a, a history lesson or a bit of a, a few facts about the organisation that you work for, um, Nature and Youth. So, so what exactly is Nature and Youth for the un, uneducated? Mm. We're an environmental youth organisation, uh, and we're a member-based organisation. So we have. Uh, uh, about 8,000 members all across Norway. Okay. And they're organized in local chapters. Um, so we have about 70 local chapters all across mm -hmm. Norway. And uh, they work on uh, environmental issues where they are mm -hmm. in their local communities. So we believe that uh, the big environmental problems we're seeing today is 
um, a result of many small problems and that the way to solve them is sort of uh, be there in each and every town, everywhere decisions are being made mm. and, and tell them to, to make more sustainable choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we also have a, a national office, mm -hmm. uh, which I work in. Yeah. Um, that work Is this on, where we're sitting now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> HQ. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we work on, on the national issues. Okay. Yeah. Dealing with the Norwegian parliament. Yeah. And politicians in the national. Um, mm. yeah. yeah. And so the, in these chapters, is, is that kind of this grassroots model mm. of kind of activation? And, and is it the case in Norway that the commune or the municipal level of decision-making, they do make a lot of environmental decisions. Yeah. Is that the case? They do. Yeah. Uh, because they, well, they often decide on how the cities are going to be planned. That's right, yeah. So they can decide if they, uh, like, for example, we work a lot on roads, uh -huh. often uh, um, re-objecting road building, yep. especially if it's on... Uh, agricultural lands mm. or in a nature reserve, mm -hmm. uh, something like that. And, and often local municipalities can have a lot to say in those cases. Yeah, okay. When you're, uh, one of the things I've learned a bit through this podcast um, series for the Fight for the Bite is that it's often also important to not just say no to everything, but also kind of say, yes, let's do something mm. else. Is that part of what uh, like the youth and nature do? Like, do you actually offer solutions whilst you kind of say, "Please mm. don't do that"? Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, I think uh, roads—that's uh, a good example of that. Cool, uh, because we want. Uh, I think the kind of the the core, um, well, the the issue that most local chapters are working on mm -hmm. is probably lowering bus prices okay. and, uh, and uh, more frequent, frequent bus uh, sure. uh, because uh, that's our, our alternative is to have um, more, uh, what do you call it, collective or like... Collective uh, transportation. Yeah, collective yeah. transportation. Sure. Um, so we want uh, on the longer distances, we want better trains yeah. instead of roads. Yeah. And, um, better trains instead of uh, airplanes as mm. well. Mm. Um, and instead of everyone driving their own car, mm. we want them to, to be riding buses and trams. Yeah, sure. And uh, in terms of uh, oil, uh, Norway doesn't even need an <laughs> alternative because nah. we're already running on 100% renewable. Yeah. The, the oil is just sold to yeah, other countries. Yeah, it's your export. Yeah. Mm. Interesting, interesting. As a Norwegian, you know, like on this question, because I want to actually start to segue towards talking about Equinor in particular, but like this, this question of the oil and as a Norwegian, it's so linked to the cultural identity, right? Is that one of the, the big mm. challenges? And salmon, of course, is obviously mm. the other thing linked to like fishing <laughs> and cod and, you know, and oil um, and fish oil. Nah, it's just a little <laughs> joke there. But like, so... Is it hard to for, for Norwegians to sh to kind of deal with this kind of um, cultural dissonance in a sense of I want to fight against this oil stuff, but oil is kind of in me in mm. a sense. Like how how do you navigate that with other Norwegians? I'm sure it must be a conversation mm. you have with friends or crazy uncles and mm. things like that. Yeah, it is it is very tricky mm. because uh, a lot of people are employed by the oil industry mm. either directly or mm. supplying to it in some mm. way um, 
many people are very dependent on the industry. Mm. So it, it can quickly become very personal yeah. to talk about uh, well, the fact that I want to <laughs> stop it being an industry. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and that's difficult. Um, many people are saying that we're ungrateful. Aha, yeah, uh, sure. That's very common. Yeah. And um, yeah. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, I think that, uh, I mean, the world has to stop using oil, right? Mm. And um, most of the oil that's already been found can't be burned if we are to meet the climate goals. Yeah. So I think that uh, if Norway can't be a country, that we're one of the richest countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And if, if we can't afford to let some of the oil stay in the ground, then which can, country can? Mm. So that, um, I think it's just something we have to do and that we're morally obligated to do. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean that um, everyone who's ever worked in the oil industry is a bad person. Mm. But uh, we need to make a, a shift and, mm. and we can afford to make a shift. Yeah. One of the interesting um, things I learned in one of the other podcast episodes was an interview with uh, Christopher Robin Haug, uh, he's in the Green Party, and he was saying this argument in Norway that, oh, we have to keep on drilling because if we don't keep on drilling, our, our state funds will dry up and we won't be able to afford the pensions for mm. our elderly people and we won't be able to do this or that. But his response was, if all the money from oil stopped tomorrow, that fund is so massive now, the, the oil fund, the big sovereign wealth fund, <laughs> it's so huge now that the money from that alone, the investments that it has made with the oil money already, can like sustain much of the budgets that, that Norway has and much of the costs that it sees in the future. Like His argument is that it's actually a lot easier to let go of oil on the financial sense because the money's been made. You know, like it's already kind of done its job for, for Norway. Um, this idea of ungratefulness, though, that must be really hard to take yeah, mm. as a Norwegian, you know, like because you're proud to be Norwegian, aren't you? Yeah, that's, mm. uh, yeah, I have a conflicting views, I think, yeah. on, on being Norwegian. Yeah. I feel on one country, and on one side, we're a country doing a lot of good and, mm. and, uh, we have uh, a very good social security system and mm. uh, a lot of um, support for youth organizations, for mm. example. We get funding from the government because yeah. the government funds youth, youth organizations. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm really proud of, of living in a country that does that. Mm. Um, but at the same time, uh, we're so rich and we still don't want to do anything about, mm. uh, about the climate. Um, and uh, I think particularly for, for people uh, living in communities that's very dependent on oil, mm. it can be very difficult to be, to be against it. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, that's, um, I mean, that's a really, uh, we've gone to so many interesting places already and there's a couple more questions on my list here. But regarding Equinor, I want to kind of bring us back to this because the, this podcast series is really kind of following the... Um, the fight for the bite and some of the actions that we've been taking here in Norway in the last uh, week. Um, did you get to go to the paddle out the other day? Did you, or you saw the paddle out in Oslo, right? Yeah. Is that one of the first paddle outs you've probably seen in Oslo? Is that one of the first times or has it been really done before? I don't really know. 
I think it's I think it is the first. Mm. Uh, That's first what I assumed. Yeah, because it's so bloody freezing. Like, who really yeah. wants to go and like sit <laughs> there for twenty minutes? Yeah, I don't think that's. Uh, I mean, th there has been. Um, like uh, civil disobedient action, sure. Uh, paddling out to an oil platform and, and yeah, yeah, stopping yeah. it. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I feel that's something different than yeah. the sort of symbolic paddle out uh, mm. <laughs> action. Yeah, cool, cool. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, because it, it is kind of, you know, I can understand as an Aussie um, that it might be kind of pushing ourselves onto the Norwegians mm. in a sense with these ideas. It's a very kind of, seems, it's been a very Australian way mm. to respond to this threat uh, down there. Um, but how do you perceive it as a, as a form of symbolic protest or whatever? Like, what's your take? Yeah, I thought it was a, a really cool way of showing solidarity mm. uh, by using the, the action mm. that Australians use. Mm. I thought that was really great. It showed, sort of showed that we, we see this issue. Mm. And... Um, I hope that, and I think that more and more Norwegians are hearing about the Australian bite mm. because I, I really think that most Norwegians aren't comfortable uh, with um, Equinor being a, a state-owned, a publicly-owned company mm. and, and doing this. Um, and I think that the only reason why they're getting away with it is because most people haven't heard about it. Okay, so this helps then. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I think so. Right, I'll give us a tick. I'm just uh, drawing a tick on the paper now <laughs> to say that that was a good idea. Regarding Equinor, let's go and bash them around for a little bit. <laughs> um, that's one of the other things that you focus on here at um, Youth and Nature, is um, Nature and Youth, I should say. What, what exactly are you doing against Equinor, or what are some of the mm. actions that you take as an organization against them? Mm. So, in our oil work, we're mostly based on influencing the government mm. and, and the public opinion. Yeah. Since um, in our history, when an oil license has been given to a company, mm. they always use it. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we've never been able to sort of persuade a company not to use a license. Yeah. But uh, um, we have had uh, campaigns against uh, Equinor and uh, also when they were called Statoil. Yeah. Uh, so for example, we had... Uh, uh, when it was called Statoil, uh, they, they had a campaign called uh, 10 Things to be Proud About uh, uh -huh. Statoil. Cool. So 10 Things to be Proud About, uh, yeah, you're Norwegian, you can be proud of these 10 things that Statoil does. Mm -hmm. So we made a counter website uh -huh. called uh, 10 things.nu. Yeah. Uh, 10 Things Not to be Proud About. <laughs> uh, so there we have things like uh, investing in tar sands in yeah. Canada. Uh, supporting um, uh, dictatorships mm. in uh, <laughs> in foreign countries mm. and and really being a part of uh, some of the worst projects around the world mm. and being one of the most aggressive companies on uh, opening up the Arctic for oil mm. drilling. Mm. Um, and now that they chose to to change their name and have a huge uh, campaign in Norway trying mm. to greenwash their name. Mm. Um, we're trying to point out, out that uh, their investments and strategies aren't changing at mm. all. They, they're doing the exact same things as when they were called Statoil, mm. just that their communication has changed. Yeah. And I think they, they're doing it because people are realizing that uh, they're realizing that people don't accept 
to be a part of uh, Equinor. Mm. Uh, yeah. It is kind of rather, I imagine that their marketing and PR department is kind of tearing their hair out at the moment mm. with these protests around, because uh, mm. it is beginning to affect this new image of theirs in mm. a pretty big way, you know, like there's many, many activists in Australia and, and just general members of the community now who, who kind of associate the name Equinor mm. with like the devil in, 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 in you know, like <laughs> the biggest threat to the coastlines ever. Um, and since that paddle out in, um, in Oslo, like obviously that was all in the major media stations picked that up. There was video of it. It's everywhere online and it's very much targeted at Equinor. Mm. Um, they must be really having a hard time with this in their PR because they would have spent a lot of money on this big change. You're saying mm. they've done a huge advertising campaign yeah. about Equinor. Like how big has it been? Cause it is, a, it, it seems like it's the, is it one of the most visible companies in Norway? I would absolutely say they're, I mean, the, um, the records aren't public, so we yep. don't know for sure. Okay. But it, it really seems like they're the most, uh, they're the company that spends the most money on communication in Norway. Mm. And, uh, I think they have over 100 employees just mm. working on that. Wow. And then they also pay uh, communication companies to like millions to, to create. Keep pumping uh, it out. Yeah. And <laughs> what's crazy is that uh, in Norway, we have a, kind of a strange tax system for uh -huh. the petroleum companies. Okay. So they have to pay 78% of their income in tax. Wow. So that's quite high. Yeah. But they can also deduct 78% of their expenditures. Okay. You know? All right. So because Equinor is quite a profitable company, uh, they can actually deduct their advertisement campaigns mm. on the tax. Uh -huh. So it may not actually cost them so much. Yeah. It may actually be that the Norwegian taxpayer is actually paying for their campaign. For their ads. Yeah, and it's so crazy because is, yeah. it's not like you can never choose to buy Equinor oil, right? Mm. You never choose when you're at the gas station. No. Will I buy? Like, you don't do that. It's just, oh, yeah. it's just to to increase public opinion mm. because they know that, that they're risking us, the Norwegian people, like, sort of stopping them going yeah. into these projects. That's an interesting... That's a remarkable num couple of numbers there mm. because... It almost is, and, and with their revenues being so high, they've essentially got a bottomless pit of money to spend on communicating and, yeah. and trying to essentially create more and more propaganda yeah. about whatever it is that they're doing, yeah. which is a pretty, that's an interesting problem. I mean, is anyone in the Norwegian kind of um, activist community trying to zero in on that problem, that they're able to deduct so all of these expenses against their taxable income? Is that something that's on the agenda? It's, um, people have pointed it out, mm. but it's not been talked about a lot. Okay. I don't think it's very many that, it's hard to explain. Well, I, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, but I get you. It's not the core issue, it, yeah. it's, it's, but it's an interesting problem. Yeah, because something like, I mean, our organization, we want to focus on the environmental issues, right? Sure. So we want, you're focusing on that mm. um, but <laughs> I think it's an issue kind of in terms of uh, it's a democratic issue really yeah that we we're paying a company to influence us yeah it's very strange very strange and our and but this is only is it specifically petroleum companies that have this special tax arrangement yeah. 
It's yeah. not just any other company that can claim that same amount of uh, expenditure on their taxes, right? No, well, I mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, so the, the regular company tax is, I don't know, maybe 30% or something. Yeah. So they can also deduct 30%. Okay, right? so it's relative to the amount you're being taxed. Yeah, so the reason okay. why is because the, the petroleum tax is ridiculously high. Mm. And, and Equinor and all of the oil companies will, of course, say that, like, no country has such a high tax. And so they negotiate for better deals on the yeah. other side. Uh -huh. so, so it was, I think it was very reasonable when it was created. Yeah. But it's sort of gotten out of hand. Yeah, particularly when you, when you look at it now with this rebranding effort and this kind of, because instead of it being a way for them to have a justifiable uh, expense versus tax mm. split, um, instead now it's like their main, it's probably one of their most critical weapons that they have to use is that they are able to spend so much money. Like they could rebrand next yeah. year then. Yeah. If, if the name Equinor gets completely tarnished in the year <laughs> ahead, they can just rebrand again and probably not really feel it too much. Yeah. Be a bit of a pain, but it, they, they probably could just rebrand again. Mm. Very interesting insight. I really like that. Um, I want to bring us back to um, to the organisation itself again, and maybe like yourself and other individuals who are involved here. Like, how how did you originally get involved in this organisation? Mm. So I think I, I got involved uh, the way most people get involved in nature and youth. Yeah. I had some. Uh, Friends who yep. started up a local chapter in Nature and Youth. Uh -huh. uh, so that was uh, when I was 16 years old and yeah. lived in uh, Kristiansand in the okay. south, south of uh, Norway. Yeah. Um, they had sort of, um, I mean, uh, we'd been uh, environmentally concerned yeah. and uh, they heard about this organization and okay. they, they contacted them and, and said, we want to make a, a local group. And okay. I got involved there and, and uh, uh, just sort of got more and more motivated yep. on, on working on the environmental issue. Yep. Uh, so then when I was, uh, I think, uh, 20 years, yep. I got, uh, I tried to get into the central board and I was selected in okay. to, the, to the board. So I've been there for two years. Okay. And with the central board, is it, is it, are there restrictions on the age you can be to be mm. on that board? Is it like an only youth board? Well, uh, to be a member of Nature and Youth, yep. you need to be uh, less than 26. Okay. So, and to be in the board, you have to be a member. Yeah. So you get kicked out when you're when you turn. 26. You get kicked out either way at 26. Yep. See you later. Yeah. So we're very we're a very young organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Compared to other environmental organizations around the world, mm. I know it's uh, most of our member base is on, under the age of 18. Okay. So we're quite young. That's interesting. Um, what do you all do when you turn 26 then? Well, we have, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, I think you, uh, people <laughs> end up uh, asking some <laughs> difficult questions about yeah. their lives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do have a, a mother organization. Okay. Uh, so that's the Naturvernforbundet. Um, okay. The Norwegian Society for the Conservation of Nature. Sounds or, good. Or uh, Friends of the Earth Norway. Yeah. Uh, also known as that. Yeah. Uh, some people get involved in that. Mm -hmm. um, they are slightly less uh, activist than us yeah we're sort of more um, they'll get married and have kids and have mortgages and stuff so, yeah, so, so they, they get occupied with other things right yeah the, uh. yeah that and, and sort of uh, a core activity for them is more writing 
uh, submissions. Okay. Uh, while we're more on <laughs> making demonstrations yeah, and, sure. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but some people get involved there, or some people get involved in politics. Yeah. And, uh, I imagine I, there must be a bit of a transition for some of your members yeah. when they're twenty six. They probably keep moving through the political yeah. sector. I guess you could say. Yeah. But some people, I mean, one of the strengths of our organization is that uh, we're, we're over 50 years old. Mm. And right now, um, all across uh, Norwegian institutions are people that have been previous Nature and Youth members. Yeah, right? sure. So, so you're taking over. Yeah, so that's <laughs> in, in like uh, if there's a company or a part of the government or some municipality that we want to influence. We will sort of figure, oh, that person was in the board or cool. she was the leader of local chapter there or there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give so, them a call. Yeah. You've got the list. Yeah. Great. Great. There's, okay, 101 on how to take over the world. Um, <laughs> and, and this organization is actually global as well, right? Like, I mean, because mm. it is Friends of the Earth, is it's connected to the Friends of the Earth network, yes. yeah? Yes. Cool. So I guess anyone listening to this, if you're under 26... Just, yeah. How do they find you? What's the what's the best way for them to find um, their local chapter? Well, if you're in Norway, mm -hmm. it's uh, going into ngu.no. Okay. And then you can uh, select your um, uh, municipality. Yeah. And uh, it cool. will uh, come up which uh, local chapter is uh, closest to you and and how you can become a member. Cool. And then um, in other countries, it's quite varied. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, in many countries, uh, the organizations are quite small, mm. or often there are no separate youth organizations. Yeah. Uh, that's the most cases. It's pretty cool that it's separate here, though, I've got to yeah. say. We, uh, we, I mean, we, we actually became an organization sort of on our own, mm. and then uh, Natu Anforbune asked us okay. to become their youth organization. Okay. So I think that's sort of the key that we weren't created, we were, we sort of created ourselves. Yeah. So then now we have still uh, um, full independence over what we do and how we use our money. And, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right, well, look, we're kind of coming to the end here. I mean, it's been a fantastic, um, very insightful chat with you and I really appreciate it. Um, with this Fight for the Bike campaign that we're kind of, some of us Aussies are here and, and Norwegians now who are getting involved as well, I mean, one of the key things I've been trying to look for in this podcast series is kind of examples of hope or inspiration from the Norwegians um, who can share this kind of their insights and and kind of provide encouragement to people in, in Australia fighting against Equinor there or in, across Europe. Like there's many, there's many battlefields when it comes mm. to the environment that um, many people out there are trying to figure out how to kind mm. of get involved. But you know, maybe it'd be nice to try and get some kind of final word from you as someone who has kind of had this journey towards being a board member and a project leader on some of these big issues. What's your kind of advice to anyone out there who's, who's, who wants to do something but doesn't mm. really know how or what mm. to do? Uh, well, I think the most important thing for me is that I have people around me that are also motivated mm. and uh, working on the same issues. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think... Uh, so something like uh, Greta Thunberg in Sweden mm. that uh, we've all heard of. I, I think it's really inspiring how she uh, 
she's done everything basically on her own. Mm. But I think that uh, most people can't do that. Mm. So I think it's important to to um, to organize in some way mm-hmm. and uh, make a plan mm. and uh, do that plan. Okay. Uh, and and try to I try to make it. Uh, I mean, I, I spend most of my time here, but I still it's a volunteer job mm. it's not paid mm. so it's very important to to stay motivated mm. so I, I try to do new things and um, figure out uh, creative ways to do activism cool make it fun <laughs> have fun do it with friends yeah sounds pretty good yeah <laughs> excellent well thank you so much for taking the time to have this interview I think people are going to really get a lot out of this. And uh, Great. yeah, good luck with the court case. Thank That's you so much. That's going to be much. really interesting to follow. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Listening to a young person like Andreas really gave me a lot of hope. Uh, I mean, you just heard the guy. If the future's in the hands of people like that, I think we, we, could, we might just be all right. Um, huge thanks to him and his organization for all of their efforts. This uh, court case that they're pursuing uh, with Greenpeace in Norway is going to be really interesting to, to see the outcome of. I think that that is, um, there's been a few others around the world that have taken place. and But this this aspect of it being in the constitution to, you know, uh, protect nature or to uh, make sure that nature is kind of enjoyable for Norwegians is a really interesting question. And, um, I look, really look forward to seeing how that one turns out that, that may well find a way to, um, solve a lot of problems. Uh, the fight for the bite will continue. There's a little piece that I'm working on now, which covers a few things around the actual AGM that, that happens the day after this interview that you just heard. Um, it requires a bit more editing because there's a lot more different voices kind of involved. So I'm working on that. So stay tuned for that. It's really interesting to hear from the different stakeholders who were involved in that campaign and who were there on the day and also to hear a few of the um, speeches that were delivered inside the AGM. So I think it's going to be uh, some really cool content for you to all, you know, enjoy, think about, um, share with your friends who are, who are you know, Norwegians, Swedes, anyone you know like this is all about raising awareness about this big problem um it's called continuing to drill for oil in the era of climate change and climate crisis we need to change things now and this type of drilling which is being proposed in the great australian bite simply just isn't acceptable anymore so we appreciate that there are some people working in the industry in the oil and gas industry as was said by um, christopher robin haug in the other interview we're all beneficiaries of this industry. So we're not naming and shaming anyone. We're all in this together. We all know what we've got to do. And this podcast series is all about communicating the opportunities and the different pathways, essentially, that all of us can get involved to make this place better. So with that said, I will also finish this little uh, outro by reminding you all that our next magazine is coming up real soon. Um, supposedly it's a doozy. I actually myself haven't seen the, uh, the print yet. I, I don't really know what's in it. I know some of the content in terms of written words are in it because uh, I have a bit to do with that. But um, Monsieur Matt is uh, taking the lead on that one and I cannot wait to see what this beauty looks like because let, let's all agree here. This guy knows how to make a magazine look sexy. So stay tuned for that. That's coming real soon. And thank you all again for listening. 
We appreciate your support. Thanks to all of the people involved in making this podcast series uh, possible, namely, you know, the people at Patagonia for for really backing this campaign uh, and also all of the other NGOs involved, the Wilderness Society, Greenpeace, Extinction Rebellion, um, probably forgot a couple, but Oil Free Little Fulton, very important one. Um, yeah, thanks to everyone involved and stay tuned for more. Thanks.